Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched The Batman, directed by Matt Reeves and starring Robert Pattinson. Rebooting the franchise with a young, socially awkward Bruce Wayne, it's a crime thriller about Batman investigating the Riddler, portrayed as a serial killer played by Paul Dano. Zoe Kravitz co-stars as Catwoman, a nightclub waitress embroiled in Gotham's criminal underworld. So this came out in theaters a couple months ago, and because of my chronic back issues, I was like, I will not be sitting in a theater for three hours to watch The Batman. That is not going to happen. Gav reviewed it at the time, and because this is now streaming on HBO Max, I was able to watch, and we are now going to discuss. So I watched this in two halves, because it's three hours long, on my laptop, which I'm sure that, you know, the director and, you know, creative people involved would be thrilled to hear. And uh, I thought it was kind of great. I really enjoyed myself. Solid four out of five stars. You have more substantive critiques than I do, I think. I mean, I think it has problems, but... I mean, I am a Batman overthinker. I I have a lot of positive and negative thoughts about this movie. I genuinely mixed, because I do think it's, in many ways, a significant cut above the blockbuster superhero average. Yeah, whereas my expectation of a Batman film is that it will be politically indefensible and incoherent, and I just bake that in, and I'm like, (laughs) I'm not going to bother analyzing further. There's, It's going to be nonsense. Um... And that it's going to be, like, macho and, you know, like, you have in our planning document, like, well, this bad roles for women. And I was, like, literally didn't even occur to me. Like, I don't disagree, but I was, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't watching the movie, this, like, you know? seething because I was, like, this is a Batman film. But at the same time, I was, like, gosh, they really didn't even bother. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, again, I don't disagree with you, but I was, I didn't even think to think of that because, like, of course. But I thought... It was incredibly well made. I thought the cinematography, which was done by um, Greg Frazier, who recently won the Oscar for Dune, was absolutely astounding. And I thought the acting was great across the board. We will obviously be talking about all of this in detail, but I just thought Robert Pattinson, especially, and then also Zoe Kravitz, were just like great. And I just found it incredibly pleasurable to watch. And that's kind of where I'm at with this. Like, was this enjoyable for me? Yes or no? And this was a yes, so that's my like sophisticated take on this. Particularly because you were able to watch it in the comfort of your own home in two halves. Because my experience of watching this movie is that um, obviously on the big screen, definitely the best experience. Like it's a big screen movie because it's, you know, dark and enormous. But like as someone who just fucking loves Batman, for the first section of this movie, I was just sitting there in pure joy. I was like, oh, I love Batman. I love Gotham. This is so great. I'm having an amazing time. And by the end, I was like, I'm feeling a bit weary now. We could really have uh, <laughs> have stopped doing this several subplots ago. So yeah, maybe bring back the intermission or just cut an entire organized crime subplot because you don't need that many villains in one movie. But yeah, before we kind of get into the general The Batman discussion, shall we just give a bit of background on, you know, this film's role in Warner Brothers' DC franchise and kind of the main people who are in charge of making it? Yes, take us away. Okay, so unlike the MCU, which is a well-oiled and deeply robotic machine that churns out identical movies every six months, the uh, DC franchise at Warner Brothers is pure chaos. The TV and movie franchises are completely disconnected. Not just that, but they are, in fact, there are multiple movie franchises going on at once. In 2013, they launched all of the kind of new DC movies with Man of Steel, the Superman film, and that kind of led into Batman v Superman, which brought in Ben Affleck's Batman. And this was under the remit of Zack Snyder. So this is like a very specific brand of films with a very intense fandom, but it was not as commercially successful as it should have been because Batman and Superman are the biggest superheroes in the world. And a lot of people were like, this is kind of distasteful. And now we're kind of in this period where there's several holdouts from there. Like we're still getting Wonder Woman movies. There's still a Flash movie coming out next year, which I can only imagine marketing wise is going to be a huge mess, but they're also kind of bringing in 
new movies that are like completely unconnected. So you've simultaneously got the Ben Affleck franchise is still going. They're bringing back Michael Keaton from the 1989 Batman from like a separate universe. And also we've got Robert Pattinson and we've got the Joker, which is a standalone thing with no Batman in it. So like they've got a very flexible attitude towards the franchise. But with this movie, it's pretty clear that they wanted to reboot the franchise in a way that kind of moves away from what it was previously, which is the Zack Snyder movies, which are extremely action-focused and not very well-reviewed and not very cerebral. And prior to that, it was obviously Christopher Nolan. So they have to find a way to do Batman in a way that is both going to be taken seriously because people take Batman way too seriously. And um, they have to do that in a way that just doesn't seem like they're copying Christopher Nolan again because he's kind of the gold standard prior to this. So they got Matt Reeves, who previously directed the Planet of the Apes movies, which I've not seen, and Cloverfield and the American remake of Let the Right One In. And while I have no previous experience of Matt Reeves, his general reputation is just like people respect him as a filmmaker. He knows what to do with a camera. He is not making schlock. He is making movies for adults, but not in a way that seems wildly pretentious, which is what Joker is. And then his co-writer, Peter Craig, wrote the final two Hunger Games movies. And I have no opinion on this man. He is a successful Hollywood (laughs) non-entity to me. Yeah, I feel like we should just highlight the fact that I have never seen those Planet of the Apes movies either, but people fucking love those films. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, many, many critics I read and respect think that they're like masterpieces. So when he was hired for this, everyone was very excited about it. Or like the people I follow on Twitter were excited about it because he's definitely respected by critics and obviously within the industry as well as someone who is like very talented and professional. And I think one of the main things that I kind of, I mean, I do have some criticisms about this as well, but like there was this huge trend at the moment for all of the superhero movie filmmakers, partly I think out of self-consciousness because they are making superhero movies, is they all want to talk a lot about the classic film references and inspirations they have. And obviously a lot of them are really into Scorsese, which is part of the reason why Scorsese is part of this discourse. But with this movie, you watch it and you're like, yeah, he is definitely borrowing a great deal from films like Taxi Driver and Clute and The Parallax View, all these like 1970s thrillers, which he talks about extensively in interviews. But unlike Joker, which is literally just plagiarism, (laughs) it does feel like he is looking at these movies in an intelligent way and not just being like, I'm going to copy this shallowly. I mean, we were talking about this, I think, in the... uh, intro we recorded for this episode last week but this does actually feel like it's a movie made for grown-ups with actual cinematic techniques and the standards currently for blockbusters are not high this is in a different category yeah i mean i think we're probably grading on a curve because yeah (laughs) just like getting to watch a big budget movie that's made by someone who actually knows what he's doing and a lot of the pleasure i got from this film was how much it very obviously was influenced by various older films, both from the 70s and even earlier. Like there's um, a couple of scenes where Pattinson is doing this very noirish voiceover at the beginning and end. And that's something from the 40s, right? I mean, it is from the 40s, but it also is very directly cribbing off one of the comic books that was specifically the inspiration for this. Because like there's two or three really famous classic Batman comics. One of them uh, is Batman Year One and the other one is The Long Halloween and they have that diary, kind of like how there's the the diary in Watchmen as well, which is all, you know, noir-influenced. Right. But, like, it's coming through Mm -hmm. in a... It's, like, influences upon influences, right? And the way that it's executed in the movie feels very much noir. But, like, the 70s movies are obviously the primary influence. And... I am not an expert on Scorsese's 70s films. I've seen a couple of them, but not too many. I've seen a lot more films from that era by other directors. And I was feeling way less Scorsese and way more stuff by other people. And it felt like he actually knew what he was doing and talking about. And that he was pulling from all of these different films in different ways. And um, we can talk about that more in depth when we get into the plot. But like the big final set piece of the movie is absolutely directly referencing the Parallax View and the Manchurian Candidate, which is from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, this is so fun, because like I know what he's doing. And whether or not that section even like works 
in the film, I almost didn't care because I was just like, well, I'm having a good time. Because, like, uh, you've I been am, caught like- by reference disease. I mean, I was really, I was really interested in how he kind of said that the Catwoman Batman relationship is directly inspired by Clute. I wrote a whole article about this. I have many thoughts, but um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you about the Scorsese thing because it's like he's kind of the most obvious reference because every person on earth has seen Taxi Driver. I would actually say the only way in which that's a clear reference is aesthetic because the way he redesigns Gotham is directly bringing in that 1970s, 80s New York vibe. You know, it begins with a graffiti subway gangster sequence, which is a classic trope of the era. And on the one hand, this does mean that it's like completely embracing the kind of 20th century conservative paranoia about urban crime on which most Batman stories are based. That is like the whole vibe of Gotham. But on the other hand, that's the only way that Gotham makes sense. Like unless you're willing to do full clown zone like Tim Burton, which is Tim Burton's Batman is still probably my favorite Batman movie. I think it's a masterpiece. But unless you go into that really kind of comic book zone, you have to create a scenario that just doesn't remotely resemble a modern American city. And that's kind of what he does here. He's just like, look, it's simultaneously the 80s and now, and also maybe kind of the 40s. And that's how it has to be. And it's like, it does have to be that way. (laughs) Well, right. As I was alluding to at the beginning, politically, all of these movies are just completely incoherent and like bad because the entire concept is like a rich man dresses up in a weird way and then Punches gang crime. (laughs) And, right, and, like, there's crime everywhere, and only he can stop it. And, like, that's not really... Like, if you think about that for more than two seconds, you're like, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) But also, Batman's very fun. So we have to just be like, well, whatever. I'll just keep watching this, I guess, you know. And I felt like everything this movie was trying to do politically, it would kind of, like, swing one way or then the other. I don't even mean, like, on a right to left direction I just mean like it would sort of like do one thing and then it would do another thing and I was just like it's fine like I don't yeah I mean the fact that they explicitly (laughs) have a subplot which is kind of about tackling the idea of like when people are criticizing Batman they're like well Batman sucks because he could just spend his money on social services and I'm like well you can make that argument but first of all that's stupid because like the reason Batman is having to fight all these supervillains is because they're all like fairy tale clown monsters and also there wouldn't be a story. But also that's kind of the third rail of Batman stories is what I wrote in my review because as soon as you like mention that, you can't have a whole movie that's him funding social services. So like maybe just don't touch it. But you know, we can get into that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, why don't we explain a bit more about the plot? Yes. And the wonderful Robert Pattinson and his new, revamped, youthful, emo, eyeliner-wearing, depressed Batman. Yes. I mean, the man is 35. He's definitely... I feel like he's definitely older than Christian Bale. He is older than Christian Bale. But the issue with Christian Bale is like he is just pure action hero and also no Christopher Nolan character exists in a normal state of human vulnerability, except maybe some of the people in Interstellar. Whereas this one is like, we have hired Robert Pattinson. I truly wish they'd allowed him to be significantly weirder, but this was a great new take on Batman that like felt fully informed where he, he should be psychologically while also being new, which is extremely difficult for fucking Batman. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was great. I thought he was probably the best thing about the movie, except the cinematography. I would put them kind of tied And so having this incredible visual look and a really great lead performance, I think, puts the movie in a great situation, even if there are things that don't work about it. Like, those two things kind of anchor it throughout. There's a lot going on with him. So simultaneously, like, a lot of the performance is when he's in the bat suit and behind the mask, right? And he does this incredible job of being incredibly still and sort of acting only with his eyes and jaw. (laughs) And... Incredible jaw. Oh, great jaw. Just what a handsome man. But he manages to project a lot from that. And I feel like in a lot of the post-Twilight roles that he's done to sort of establish himself as a serious actor, he's done a kind of manic thing. I guess High Life isn't like that, but the one I still think about the most is Good Time, which he's fully just like off the chain in that movie. 
And um, his obviously his like real life persona is also as kind of this like Very strange weird weirdo. <laughs> yeah. And something about the stillness of him when he's in character as Batman, right? Within the text of the movie, I found really compelling because somehow you can tell that he's very uncomfortable while he's also projecting something that's making people around him uncomfortable. And then when he takes the suit off, he's just this like weird emo kid. that's like just kind of pathetic. And I felt like the two things worked together really, really well. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I found very interesting and I think is kind of a first for the most accessible parts of the Batman franchise, like the big movies is that usually it's not just an idea of him having his secret identity and his real life identity. There's like three Bruce Wayne's always because you've got Batman, you've got the real Bruce Wayne, and then you've got like the kind of fun socialite guy, the Brucey Wayne, who goes and just like parties and covers up the fact that Bruce Wayne is like either secretly, you know, Batman or secretly at home as this really responsible father in many of the comics. And here, there's no Brucey Wayne. The way that Matt Reeves and Peter Craig decided to reboot this character is he obviously has kind of set up all of this Batman stuff. He's already established as a superhero. He's been a vigilante in Gotham for like one year. So he's got these established relationships with the police and stuff. But after coming back from like wherever he got his training, he never established himself as a public figure. So he is basically just like this somewhat well-known recluse like it's kind of surprising when Bruce Wayne shows up for someone's funeral halfway through the movie because like no one ever sees Bruce Wayne and he just lives in this like incredible kind of gothic church apartment where it's like they've kind of brought in old parts of Notre Dame Cathedral and glued them onto the side of a skyscraper I was like this apartment is one of my favorite parts of the film this is like better than anything Christopher Nolan did with Gotham because his Gotham was just like what if this was all the business district of Chicago which is a terrible interpretation of Gotham but um it's interesting that he just has no public persona and it says a lot about like what he is as a character because as you say he is very awkward and that works really well for the idea of him as this person who is quite new to his job so he's extremely skilled he's extremely intelligent the whole story is a detective story so he has to be set up as someone who is an extraordinarily good investigator like he immediately outstrips all of the police when he visits a crime scene at the beginning of the movie but even though he's really good at kind of understanding the criminal mind as a profiler or whatever, in that kind of classic superhuman film detective way, he has very poor social skills. And that's partly because he literally just doesn't value social skills. Like he has never considered, I should make up a public persona for myself. And also he isn't capable of doing that because the way that this movie has decided to interpret his childhood trauma and emotional damage is that he just like doesn't interact with people. And he's very socially awkward around women, which was a really interesting element of his relationship with cat women because it's a very compelling relationship in many ways. Zoe Kravitz is incredible, of course, and looks amazing. But he isn't like this suave person and he is sexist towards her. There's a really interesting sequence later on where like it, he just doesn't understand her perspective and it felt like a very intelligent examination of like why a man just like wouldn't get that you know yeah I mean there's a level of like cluelessness that I think is interesting in that scene you're referring to I mean it comes up a few times with them but you get the sense that he hasn't thought very much about other people's lives or experiences in general and then it's manifesting in a particular way with her right because there's a class element there's a gender element so it's not that he's like trying to be malicious. He just is like, yeah, this is not something that his brain has like worked on in any way. Yeah. I mean, what I'm referring to, I mean, this isn't like a major spoiler and I'm sure most listeners will have seen the movie anyway, but um, there's kind of several different strands of this film, obviously, because it's so fucking long. Um, the main plot is the Riddler, who is revamped here as a kind of Zodiac killer style serial killer and terrorist is the main person that Batman is investigating. And while he's investigating, he meets Selina Kyle, aka Catwoman, for the first time. And she is a kind of nightclub hostess at a mob bar. And that's where the Penguin, played by Colin Farrell, and also the mob boss, Carmine Falcone, played by John Turturro, are both kind of regulars at this bar, along with various other corrupt elements of the Gotham establishment. And 
after he encounters Selena Kyle, Bruce realizes that she could be a really useful ally and they have like overlapping quests. So because he personally can't go undercover in this bar, he gives her surveillance contact lenses and she like goes undercover. And it's already been established in the film that like he is kind of a creeper Batman, right? Like unlike in the Christopher Nolan movies where it's this very kind of post 9-11 surveillance is important and powerful, look at this amazing technology situation. In this movie, Matt Reeves, the director, is far more informed by all of these 1970s paranoia thrillers, which have a very kind of psychological thriller view of the concept of surveillance, particularly Clute, which we did an episode on, which is about a sex worker and a detective who get like embroiled in this crime and she's being stalked and spied on. And when Batman is like watching people, it is kind of creepy. And there is a sequence where he is just like surveilling Catwoman in her house and like seeing her getting changed and stuff. And he's like uncomfortable with it, but like there's no one who's kind of like policing him because he's just this loner. And then when he gives her these contact lenses, that's the first time he is getting to see the world from her perspective. And he just has no understanding of what it's like to have all these men staring at her and try and get into like a conversation with someone at the bar to get information from them. It's just like such, it's such a loaded social interaction. Like he's pressuring her to flirt with some guy so he can give her information. And he doesn't understand the dangers inherent there and that he is putting her in danger. And it just like, it just felt like, like a very smart interaction for these two characters in a way that like hasn't been understood for those characters on the big screen for a long time. Like, I don't think this is, in terms of, like, pure sexual tension and drama, it's nothing on Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer in the original Batman. Absolutely iconic duo. But there's a lot more going on psychologically here than we see in most blockbusters, let's put it that way. Well, also, he makes some comment about, like, her choosing to live this way yes. or whatever. And she's just like, are you fucking kidding me, right? He's judging her because, like, he thinks she's a sex worker and she's, like, embroiled in these relationships with powerful men. And um, there is like a pretty major spoiler, which I will just now spoil, which is that she is kind of speaking to John Turturro, aka Carmine Falcone, who is this mob boss. And Bruce kind of assumes that she's slept with him. And the twist here is that he is actually her estranged father and like her quest, her goal here is to like try and take him down because she hates him for, you know, obvious reasons. He's like a bad man. And I actually really didn't like that twist because I thought they'd done such a good job of showing up the fact that Bruce is clueless and kind of has these inbuilt biases about her gender and class and what people have to do for money. And like it should have just been like, you need to be less judgmental of what she is doing for money, which is kind of an ongoing theme in all of the Catwoman comics, even when she's doing more family-friendly stuff like stealing cartoon jewels. But instead they're like, well, actually you were wrong all along because it's her father. And I was just like, we didn't need that twist. That makes it less interesting. Well, I think it's also like, that's the easiest plot line to cut. Yes. In the movie, although then she has less to do. So then you're left with well, another the problem. Is, but she doesn't have, this is the thing, right? Because I was like, they should have cut that. Like, I just, I really wish they just didn't have that. Because like, it was a stupid twist. And there's like way too many side characters in this film. There's a lot of them. And they're all men. And they're all like, I'm doing a crime now. And it's like, we don't need all of this. Please stay on track. Batman should be staying on track. But um, her initial mission is that her bestie slash flatmate slash possible girlfriend Anika who is also a waitress at this club goes missing and eventually you know inevitably of course it turns out she's been murdered and that is like her motivating factor at first and then as soon as you've got to the point where we're exchanging relevant information from Batman's perspective and we reveal this thing about Carmine Falcone Anika just completely vanishes from the movie and no longer becomes relevant in a way that is just like such a cliche for crime dramas where you like kill off a young blonde woman to motivate someone and then like dispose of her when it's no longer relevant. And I was just well, like, they do find her body. They find her body, and then she becomes tries to murder some yes. policemen, and then she becomes emotionally <laughs> and narratively irrelevant after that's happened. And I was just like. It would have been better if you just like built up more of that relationship instead of John Turturro, but that is, you know, critiquing the film that doesn't exist, that exists in my mind. <laughs> yes. Also a classic situation of like women referring to each other as like babe, etc. and like not clarifying whether they are in fact actually in a relationship because WB doesn't want to get censored in yes. China. It's like <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, 
It was interesting watching it in two parts because, like, I went to bed because I needed to go to bed, not because I was, like, if I'm halfway through this movie and I'm bored. Like, I was actually totally engaged the whole time, and I didn't find it particularly slow, which I know that some other people have. I'm sure that if I'd watched it all in one go, I would have been like, okay, guys, like, let's let's hurry it up. I was surprised that I didn't wasn't more aggravated by the length. I think it definitely could have been shorter, but I think... Two and a half hours actually probably would have been fine. And normally I think that that's way too long. I think they did a pretty good job of managing the scope. And I kind of liked that it had this epic feel. And I think because it is structured like a mystery and not like an action movie, that kind of going down one path or another and then being sort of directed back to the central plot is okay because you're it's sort of like oh we're going down this red herring and this red herring and of course as a viewer you kind of know that that's what's happening but it doesn't matter so much i mean yeah it's like when we talk about oh such and such a part should be cut it's like a different conversation with this movie than when we're discussing you know if we were discussing batman v superman right because as you say it's not really an action movie and the issue with most of these two and a half hour long blockbusters is that while they are technically action movies, the action itself is not very good. So you get really bored during the action sequences and there's really not very much plot at all. The plot is extremely simple. Whereas in this, there is tons and tons of plot. There's a there's a fuckload of plot and it's just that you could have just removed one of the sections of the plot and it would have been fine. Yeah, but like I was never bored and like I found it pretty engrossing and for that to be the case for a three hour movie, albeit when I watched in two chunks, is a testament to the filmmakers. I really do think they need to bring intermissions back. Like, I don't understand why this is such a taboo. I went and saw 2001 on a print years ago now. And because it was on like an old print, they had the intermission in the middle. And everyone just like got up and wandered around and got some extra popcorn and went to the bathroom. And like, it was very pleasant. And why not just do that in the middle of your three hour Batman? Like, I don't understand, you know? Because I was like, tired by the end yes (laughs) if the expectation is that people are going to experience this in the theater where you do have to watch the whole thing at once then you should either make it shorter or you should allow them to get up you know (laughs) but i did find like i just found the fact that it was actually structured around a normal screenplay and not mindless action extremely refreshing like there were a couple lines of dialogue that were a little cringy but overall even if the dialogue is mostly a bit heightened in this because it's a superhero movie, the f- fact that you're actually watching people like have conversations <laughs> or like go into a nightclub, maybe something happens. Like that's still not like people blowing things up. Although there are some explosions in this movie. And I was just like, thank God, like this is just so much more enjoyable to me than all of that garbage. And also the issue with the dialogue in this kind of film is just like, that's why you hire John Turturro and Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. It's like, you hire those people so the bad dialogue doesn't matter, which is why the X-Men franchise is so incredible because those movies are mostly garbage, but they have one of the greatest casts in history. And you're like, wow, God, keep going, James McAvoy. I'm so moved by the trash (laughs) that is coming out of your mouth. Well, it's really true. I mean, every single person in this movie, I was like, this is like a clearinghouse for like the great <laughs> actors of American and, you know, Robert Pattinson, of course, British cinema. Like Peter Sarsgaard is in this movie for like 15 <laughs> minutes. Sure. Why not? And like no part too small to not hire a absurdly talented character actor, which like speaks to how well-liked Matt Reeves is, I think. Like, he he must have had an unbelievably good pitch to hire all these people. Not that people are opposed to being paid a lot of money by doing a studio movie, but, like, Peter Sarsgaard was not showing up for Marvel films, right? So he clearly convinced them that this was going to be different, and it was, right? Obviously, the indefensible casting situation which we have to mention is Colin Farrell I was which, literally like I, like, I was just... like why hasn't Morgan talked about Colin yet because this is heinous and he is doing yeah. a TV spinoff what is wrong with this man I mean look I love Colin Farrell I'm not gonna blame him for this situation because if I assume they are paying him literally gajillions of dollars yeah but like, i hope he is putting he to good use have to do all the makeup and stuff 
Like, he is in there. He is like, I couldn't be more thrilled to have my whole face covered up with full face prosthetics and to wear a fat suit, which is, of course, the dregs of cinema. But like, as everyone pointed out, as soon as any photos leaked from this set, we don't need to relitigate this, but you could have just hired an ugly person. There's a lot of ugly people out there who need work. Just hire like an average looking 50 year old fat man to play the fucking penguin instead of Bill being like- Camp is available. He works a lot. I don't know why we couldn't have done. I mean, he's not, he doesn't have the like, you know, Italian thing, but like, I just don't, I mean, I do Colin not Farrell and Jared Leto, obviously as people, very different, but the vibes here with like the House of Gucci role and this, this isn't quite on the Gucci level, but it was still like, you've made some unnecessary choices. <laughs> Having seen both of them, I can assure you that number one, the makeup, though offensive and unnecessary in this case, was much better executed. Oh yeah, I mean, it was pretty plausible. Like, you know, it was it was good. Obviously the makeup and stuff worn by Jared Leto was a crime against humanity. Yeah. And number two, the performance was vastly superior. Of course, that's because Colin Farrell's actually an actor. Right. How much of that was the performance and how much was the makeup? I couldn't really tell you. So it wasn't like watching the movie. I mean, I was distracted by it because I knew what was going on, but it wasn't like it, you know, ruined the film for me. But I was just like, why? Why is this happening? I don't understand. So that was bad. That was my main complaint. Yeah. We don't need to dwell on that any further because no. there's really nothing else to say except that yeah. it shouldn't have I happened. mean, this movie didn't need two mob bosses in it and we didn't need one of them to be the penguin and the penguin didn't need to be Colin Farrell in prosthetics is my thesis. <laughs> yeah, you just follow that flow chart, you know. And like, But why don't we talk a bit about Paul Dano who plays the primary... Yeah, the key villain, the central villain of this movie. Yes, um, having a ball in this film... I was, the whole time I was just like, Paul Dano is having such a great time. He doesn't appear on screen very much at all because, as you said, he's doing a kind of Zodiac Killer thing. So, like, he'll be on video calls or on videos that have come up online or, you know, whatever. And so he's mostly acting just with his voice until the end of the movie where he does show up on screen. And the stuff he does with his voice is just, like, so over the top. I was like, he must have had... So much fun. And I... The most I mean, cliched character, just by several, just like by a mile. Unbelievable cliche lips. <laughs> I mean, it's just like the whole movie is It's Batman. Doing that, I mean, it's like, Batman. Whatever. I'm not denying it's I was Batman. Not, I was not bothered. I've also like seen him talk in person and followed his career for like, you know, over 15 years and he's very soft spoken and like seems like a very polite man. And so to hear him just like raving like this, I just found it very amusing. And when he finally does show up in person at the end of the movie, I was just like, this is fully just a riff on his There Will Be Blood performance. Like the mannerisms are very similar and I found that quite funny I was like you know what great this is what's required of you you just pull one of the old tricks out of the bag and deploy it why not in this very stereotypical serial killer storyline there is not really much more to say on that level to be honest I would prefer if uh I mean, the, the, the scourge of this entire franchise is like the obsession with being taken seriously. And I think this is like a million times better than Joker, which I just found like distasteful, stupid and offensive. But at the same time, it's like, you have to take this so seriously that you can't just allow the Riddler to be like the fun Riddler. It's got to be like, these characters are no longer penguin adjacent. They're like a real criminal man. And this guy who wants to dismember everyone. And also amusingly, this film, like it's, it's not like, oh, this is almost an R rating, but... The stuff that the Riddler is doing is pretty fucked up. Like, it, it's definitely, like, it's hardcore for a PG-13 film. And I do definitely find it noticeable that, like, that stuff, of course, is acceptable. And the horniness that everyone's commenting on, like, oh, this is such a horny Catwoman Batman movie. It's like, that stuff is extremely restrained. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a bit where he has, like, a cage contraption over someone's face filled with rats to, like, eat his face. And I was sort of like, this feels gratuitous to me. Like, I just don't I like, know. This is the same rating as Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah, like, 
children watch these, you know? And I just feel like Yeah, I mean, don't take your kids to this. Don't take your kids to Man of Steel. There were so many anecdotes about people just like crying. There were like six-year-olds crying in the cinema. I I wasn't thinking about it at the time, actually, but talking about it now, it reminds me of... um, of Christopher Nolan going to, like, the careful stuff he was doing on The Dark Knight because they were like, you can't show any blood, but you can basically do anything else you want. So, like, the pencil scene at the beginning of that movie is, like, quite upsetting. Amazing scene. (laughs) So, oh yeah, incredible. But there was, like, all kinds of stuff in that where because there's no gore, like, it doesn't matter. And similarly with this, right? It's very disturbing, but it's not technically bloody. When, I mean, the MPAA is a fucking joke of, of an organization. Yeah, I didn't mind the sort of, like, stereotypical serial killer stuff. Like, obviously, it was not original, but I thought it was pretty well executed in terms of, like, creating suspense for the plot. I just find it kind of dull. I was like, I feel like I've seen this a hundred times. I thought it was too much in certain cases. Like the rats, I didn't, I was like, I don't need to see this. Not that they're showing the rats eating the guy's face, but I, I just kind of liked the mystery component and the fact that there were these sort of like, we're going from thing to thing and there's like another puzzle. And even if it's not like super clever, like I just liked that there was a kind of structure to the movie that again, wasn't just stuff blowing up. We're grading on a curve here, which is like, (laughs) you know, and I thought that scene between Pattinson and Paul Dano at the end was really, really great. So that kind of increased my appreciation of the way of the whole thing, sort of saving him for the end and not really using him so much until that point felt really effective to me. And you get the sense of like how these people, I mean, it's a classic superhero thing where like the villain is a sort of dark mirror image of the hero. And, um, I just felt like that really worked. I also was not having any sense of like, I wish the Riddler were like making jokes because I was I mean, like, no, in this film, like, it would not be compatible this with this movie at all. Is doing. I mean, what you're saying about the investigative structure really goes hand in hand with the fact that Matt Reeves is clearly just far more interested in the psychology of Bruce Wayne and Batman than like a lot of these other filmmakers. Because like, obviously like the number one conversation topic in interviews with filmmakers who are making a Batman movie is they're always like, oh, I'm really like digging into Batman's motivations and his backstory and his trauma and all that stuff. Because that's what you have to say. But of course, those interpretations are very shallow. And in this case, like obviously that's a big element here because it's fucking Batman. But the fact that he is investigator is just bringing to the foreground an element of the comics, which has just never really been shown in the movies because it wasn't perceived as being compatible with blockbuster filmmaking or the director's vision or whatever. Because the whole point of Batman, like within the larger DC Comics pantheon and the Justice League, is that he is the smart one. Like he is the strategist. He is meant to be the one who really gets into people's heads and not just as a criminal profiler, but like as an amazing strategist and really gets what's up. And that is much harder in terms of writing than writing a character like Tony Stark, where you're just like, he's a mega genius, so he can invent a robot because that's just fantasy. Like you can just make that stuff up and have some techno babble. And writing a solid mystery story about a smart person outwitting another smart person is very difficult. Um, and that's what they have here. And that's what you have like in loads of really great comics, including some of the ones that inspired this. Yeah. Um, and I think Part of what worked about that in this movie is that there's a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing, which you referenced at the beginning, where he'll just kind of like in the way of movie detectives be like, well, it's obviously this random thing. That's what's happening. But they don't go too overboard with that. It's just like dropped in occasionally to kind of remind you that he's really smart. And he gets a little help from Alfred occasionally. Like Alfred's like, oh, I'm going to do some code breaking because... Alfred's like, yeah. you know, used to be in like whatever the SAS, you know, famous for their code breaking, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, how Alfred got to be a butler at this place with his background and accent, I would like an explanation. I mean, like, he's really the fine. male version of Peter Parker's Aunt May, who is just like getting younger and younger in age with each film. Alfred used to be this 90 year old charming old classic stereotypical butler who I think in some elements of Batman canon is literally a former actor so it's like he's kind of having fun playing the performance of being a butler but then in the more badass ones it's like oh he's tough and he can handle a machine gun and Michael Caine's is the best because you can kind of 
Like you look at Michael Caine's uh, Alfred and you're like, there's a pretty good chance this man has done some war crimes in the 70s, you know? <laughs> like that is the backstory vibe you get from him. And his accent is like what Americans are like, oh yeah, it's a butler. It's like, that is not the accent a butler would have here. Um, but with Andy Serkis, <laughs> it's just like, this man looks like a bruiser, you know? <laughs> So it's like, so I guess like, also he's quite young. So it's like you were a single dad at like 30, which is normal, but Butler. Okay. I mean, he's quite good in the movie. Oh, it's yeah. just I very mean, funny. Circus, I respect as an actor, you know, and um, perfectly reasonable, but it's always funny to see the way they've chosen to interpret that character. And I'm like, you could just have him be like a nice Butler, which is the issue with Hollywood refusing to have any of the Robins. Um, I know there's, there's constantly outcry for them to put the Robins back in. And I think it would be really amazing to see Robert Pattinson with a kid because it would just be oh my God. delightful. Because like he's so emotionally fucked up and vulnerable, and like all the best kind of Bat Family stories are just about competent slash incompetent parenting from Bruce Wayne adopting a vulnerable child. And I I fucking love the Bat Family. Everyone loves the Bat Family, but for that, I think you do need to have an Alfred who is just like this lovely grandfather who's baking cookies in the background. And Andy Serkis is going to be like, "Do you want to learn how to like load a Glock?" <laughs> <laughs> we should say he was in all the planet of the ape oh yeah, yeah, playing yeah. The apes, yeah the apes obviously so i'm sure that's why he was cast but uh it's funny also jeffrey wright plays yes gordon in this film really one of the more thankless roles because he's just there to like have expository discussions with batman but obviously jeffrey wright great job I thought he was great. I mean, obviously he's a great actor, but I thought he did a really good job with that dynamic in this, and it was less thankless than you might think, because they gave the two of them more of a relationship yeah. than often is the case. Um, I mean, Gary Oldman gets a lot to do in the Nolan movies, too, but in this one... The sense of them kind of being in cahoots. Yes, I <laughs> did like, enjoy that. <laughs> I found really fun... And the set, the idea that Jeffrey Wright is kind of like slightly not following protocol, or even more than slightly, yeah. When he's just like having this dude around, and all the other cops are like, "What the fuck?" Like this is not. I like that because, like, with Jeffrey Wright, maybe I'm just inferring this because I know in real life that he's got some fucked up business interests. But I feel like Jeffrey Wright is quite good at conveying this quality of just having a bit of a dodgy side, you know. <laughs> Like characters who are basically on the right side and are quite smart and also are like a bit dodgy. I've seen him do like several of those roles and it's he's good at it. <laughs> well, but he can also, I mean, you didn't see the French Dispatch, right? No, no, I did. Yeah. Yeah, he's great in that. He is one of the best parts in that movie with 900 he's characters. wonderful in that movie playing sort of a riff on James Baldwin. And it was interesting to me to see this so soon after that movie where like, because it's Wes Anderson, it's they have to be a bit more mannered and if the movies, yeah. I mean, obviously this movie is also very carefully shot, but like in a Wes Anderson movie, every shot is like so carefully blocked out. And so his performance has to be very careful and he's projecting so much warmth and world weariness in that movie and sort of like refined taste. Yes. Food writer, <laughs> you know, he also is the only good thing about the goldfinch, which came out a few years ago. He plays the like, lovable sort of surrogate dad and that wholly just like a wonderful person in that i mean i kind of think of jeffrey wright also as one of those actors where he's often the best part of a film that's not oh, good yeah because yeah, he's yeah. not like high caliber enough on the a-list level to be just doing only good movies and he loves to just do a movie for money but also he will be good at it and it won't be in the sort of mads mickelson zone where you're like this guy's a genius you'll just be like wow jeffrey wright just is consistently very gives good work and also will occasionally just be in a, a clunker playing, you know, the fifth most important character very competently. <laughs> yes. I mean, everyone thought the Goldfinch was going to win a bunch of Oscars and that is aggressively not what happened. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think probably you're the only person I know who even watched it, but the reviews were a poop. Yeah. But somehow like thinking about those three performances in conjunction was just interesting to me because they all have a sense of authority, right? But in very different ways. And in this one... It's like middle management, right? Because yes. he's not actually in charge yet, but he kind of is in charge. And so there's this sense of like getting one over on the people who are in charge by like inviting his friend, the Batman, to come along. <laughs> and um, 
they have to kind of like go on the run a little bit, like just within Gotham, but like the police are look, the rest of the police are looking for them. And um, there's a great scene where they're like whispering to each other in like an interrogation room, trying to avoid detection. Oh, I'd from forgotten the other that. Cops. That's a fun one. That is a fun one. Just great. And then Bruce punches him in the face to avoid suspicion. Like actually, really punches him in the face. And I really liked that relationship because, as we've been saying, like, this man, meaning Bruce Wayne, is so completely emotionally just, like, a disaster and, like, doesn't know how to have human relationships. Aside from Alfred, like, the only functional one he really has is with this detective who doesn't actually know who he is. And they just kind of, like, huddle and, like, talk about horrible, gruesome things that have happened. I have to say, in turn, like, as a contemporary film, this movie really felt like it was suffering from the loss of cigarettes from modern cinema. Mm. <laughs> they would all have been fucking chain smoking. <laughs> oh my god, 1000%. And talk about, like, the 70s movies that this is inspired by, right? Which I do want to talk a little bit more about some of those. So, we, you mentioned Clute, which I didn't know that this was directly influenced by Clute, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. But, like, the French Connection, which I saw for the first time recently and thought was, like, fine. Yeah, I watched it too and was like, I'm underwhelmed. But it's visually really striking, and I think that that's kind of mm-hmm. where a lot of the inspiration comes from here and has a really famous car chase that is obviously a direct influence on a big car chase in this movie. My understanding is that that movie essentially invented how car chases are shot in films today. But that's a movie where, like, Gene Hackman and... The Jaws guy, I can't remember the name. They're like undercover cops and they're surveilling people. And they are smoking 1,000 cigarettes. Like they're (laughs) just constantly smoking a cigarette. And the cops in this film would also be I just checked and Bullet came out in 1968, the OG car film. Then uh, The French Connection is 1971. And Starsky and Hutch premieres 1975, which is the point where that has boiled down to the mainstream cop car chase phenomenon. Yeah, I've never seen Bullet, so I don't know exactly, but I think it's something about the way they put the cameras on yeah. the sides of the cars in yeah. the French Connection. Which no, no, now I'm, is I'm like not denying that. I'm just thing. kind of thinking about yeah. the, the timeline. And that car chase in the French Connection is incredible. I just think the overall movie is kind of boring. But um, there are certain ways that the cinematography looks in certain parts of this movie that reminded me a lot of that. Like you could tell that there had been a lot of thought going into the way that those early films were being referenced and like the conversation also is one that they mentioned which uh is a Francis Ford Coppola movie with Gene Hackman and um it's another paranoid thriller I haven't seen it since I was 18 so I don't remember it very well but it's another like surveillance movie and like the opening shots of this movie are someone like watching somebody through binoculars through an apartment and I was like this is like the conversation like I think that maybe how that movie opens also i think it's like a long shot on gene hackman like walking around New York I, somewhere. I really liked the first section of this film a lot yeah the opening scene is just like a really obvious fake out and i was like i love an obvious fake out i don't know if we're meant to be like fooled by this but it's great because you kind of think it might be thomas wayne and then it's not and i also liked that um it was not one but two side characters in this played by stars of black sails <laughs> nice to see people getting work <laughs> also your man Izzy Hans. Yeah, in, yeah. Con O'Neill character actor from Our Flag Means Death in some kind of minor cop role at some point. <laughs> Playing the same character. Just like very <laughs> angry about something in a similar way. Yeah. And then, well, shall we talk about the end or shall we do some technical stuff before we get to let's, the end? Let's just talk about the end. So yeah, the finale... Paul Dano's Riddler has sort of radicalized a bunch of guys online because we got to make these stories contemporary. And uh, instead of it being more of a one-on-one drama, they do at least somewhat make a nod toward the blockbuster genre by having a big set piece where Batman fights a bunch of these radicalized goons and also this big crowd of Gothamites are put in danger because they've like caused this flood in Gotham by blowing up a bunch of, you know seawalls or something and the current mayoral candidate is under threat so there's this big set piece that's in the area where everyone's sheltering and after defeating the riddler's goons 
Batman's kind of final act is to be kind of like a first responder. They use this imagery where he's like saving people from the wreckage and being a light to shine them out of the darkness. And I was like, okay, well, you're making an effort to turn this one around. Okay, fine. I see what you're doing here. But kind of on a more important thematic level, this whole investigation, in addition to the overall kind of crime arcs, the investigation has revealed to Bruce that his parents' investment in this kind of Gotham relief fund has just spent years being vampirized by all these corrupt city officials. So like all of his parents' money has been used for ill. So it is directly commenting on the idea of like Bruce Wayne could be doing more for the city by investing and being more involved in city projects, which of course he is in like numerous cartoons and comics and stuff. But throughout the movie, he has basically been overtly disconnected from his own wealth. Like he is only using it as a tool. His completely explicit attitude is once I run out of money that's it done I don't care I don't want to go to board meetings Alfred's trying to get him to go and participate in Wayne Enterprises but he's refusing and it's clear that he's close to being pushed out of the out of the job and his kind of confrontations with Catwoman begin to bring thematic critiques of that to the surface because Catwoman is like oh you must be like a rich privileged guy under that mask because only a rich guy would be criticizing me for what I have to do to survive to make money and Bruce has just like never considered this at all because he is so single-minded and so kind of traumatized and also privileged, of course, that he just doesn't think about money because he doesn't need to think about money. And once he makes this revelation, he is like, oh shit. And it kind of sets up the idea that in the next film, he will presumably be more engaged with being enterprises. He will be more on the ball with his money and he'll be using his money in a better way and trying to clean up this internal corruption. And I thought that was like a really good arc. It's a really good psychological arc, but that sequence at the end, just kind of visually where he's becoming a first responder, I was just like, steady on. We've already got a lot of stuff in this movie. Uh, <laughs> this is pushing it a little. But okay, he's he's saving Gotham. He is the hero Gotham needs. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think it's just like a visual signifier. Yes, like, I don't, yes, I don't, yes. There's also a moment where the Riddler talks about like growing up in an orphanage and how when Bruce Wayne's parents died that like everyone was like the press was obsessed with him and his like tragic childhood and that like he wasn't really an orphan that the kids in the orphanage were orphans and that was the only moment I really felt in the movie that it was like making a point on like a political level that was effective just like on an emotional level not like it was making some grand statement about politics that was like deep but something about the way it was written and performed just felt like true to and me. it's so, it's such a good setup for him to have a son in the next movie. Because like there was even a scene where someone else's parents have been murdered. You see kind of Batman looking at this like 10 year old kid who has been orphaned and clearly identifying with him. So like all of, all of that sort of like orphan stuff, which is always present in the movies here is much more literally present in the present day rather than it just being like, here is the backstory origin story stereotype. And it's like, adopt a child, bring in Dick Grayson, bring him in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought they did a really good job with that kid who's in the movie periodically of like, that brings up what we all know about Batman's childhood because we've all seen these fucking movies and then you don't have to show us again. So like there's this lingering specter of this thing that's happened to him and then you're doing something slightly different with it and how it's affected him as an adult without literally replaying it, right? But I also want to talk about a couple other elements of that last chunk of the movie. So it all plays out in this. It's like Gotham Square Garden. It's obviously meant to be Madison Square Garden. And these stand-ins for the Riddler, his sort of radicalized followers, go in and they're trying to assassinate the mayoral candidate, which is directly exactly the conclusion of the Parallax View and the Manchurian Candidate, except that in both those movies, the protagonists have been like brainwashed into doing that. And you're more like those movies are about those characters as opposed to this, where it's kind of using that plot from like the outside, right? Because no one actually cares about (laughs) these like random radicalized dudes. But again, they're like shot in quite a similar way in certain moments as things from that, those movies. And the sort of threat of someone on a stage being shot in that way, which obviously is like a thing that has happened at various points in the world in real life, but seemed very much to be like talking to those films. And I thought that was really interesting. 
I thought that last sequence from an action perspective was very well done because it was much bigger than anything else in the movie. Obviously the studio was like, you have to have a big action sequence at the end. Like this is just a requirement, but it didn't feel as like crazy or bombastic as a lot. I mean, it was like, it was also rooted in physical peril. You know, it's like you actually feel like Bruce Wayne is in danger. They really don't go overboard with the gadgets in this film. Nope. I slightly prefer a slightly more stylized Batmobile, but I respect the need to reboot the Batmobile with every movie. And I think I do prefer this one to the tank that Christopher Nolan has. But yeah, like it's, you know, he has physical hand-to-hand fights with all of these goons and uh, has to save a bunch of people from some water. And obviously this entire movie is filled with CGI, but it's far higher quality than what we see in the MCU. So you're not always thinking, wow, what a big cloud of nothingness. It feels real. So well done to them. Yeah, I was thinking about the CGI a lot because we were talking about CGI and visual effects on our episode last week in the context of me watching some screeners and like, it was really revealing. I mean, it's not like I intellectually knew this, but when you're actually seeing how much of everything that gets made is CGI now. And of course, in this film, there's a ton of CGI and it's most obvious when you're on the like streets that have clearly been sort of pasted together from various parts of the world or just concocted full cloth very importantly this film is partially filmed in glasgow oh i know i was thinking about that a lot yes they film a lot of gotham said there was also batwoman the next movie is being filmed here uh robert pattinson was hanging around for a while here did not bump into him personally but um the final sequence is the most noticeable for glasgow because it's uh, set in glasgow's necropolis which is an extremely gotham looking churchyard and i was like good to see you but yeah, there's a lot of composite <laughs> shots where you'll have like a bit of Glasgow and then a bit of like Liverpool and then a vast CGI backdrop of like, you know, lakes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, but something like the interior of the Gotham Square Garden in quotes, I was never thinking, no. oh, this is obviously CGI, even though surely there is tons of CGI yeah. in that Which sequence. is clearly because um, Matt Reeves as a filmmaker has all this experience from the Planet of the Apes movies and is like a genuine hands-on participant in this. Because the problem with stuff like the MCU is the directors are not personally doing it themselves. It's all being done like by the shop, you know? Yeah, I mean, we have been told by people who know what they're talking about that oftentimes slash most of the time the problem with the VFX stuff is the director not being involved enough and or stuff getting sort of ordered at the last minute and then the craftspeople just like not having enough time to do a good job and in this case that would not have been the case because he knows what he's doing and obviously like was on top of things and warner brothers is willing to allocate a colossal fucking budget (laughs) yeah yeah i also just want to say a couple more things about greg frazier the cinematographer because i think Mm -hmm. as like as i mentioned earlier i think a huge reason that the movie works is that it looks so good and obviously he would have you know but collaborating very closely with Matt Reeves to make the film look this great. But I didn't know he had shot it. And so the whole time I was watching, I was like, man, this movie just looks so fucking good. Like, I wonder who shot it. And I just didn't look it up after I watched the first half. And um, the credits rolled and I watched because I wanted to see who the cinematographer was. And when his name came up, I was like, a fucking course. Like, it's the, like, master of the blockbuster right now. And we talked about him when we did Bright Star a couple of years ago, because that was his breakout. Jane Campion kind of discovered him. And that's such a different kind of movie. It's very small and quiet, but looks absolutely gorgeous. And I think it's really interesting that he's kind of scaled up to these really big movies. But I just think what he can do with light and depth in this scale of thing is really, really remarkable. I mean, the framing of the shots is also like clearly very intentional but this movie basically all takes place at night and so you're getting these kind of street lamp kind of lighting situations right and it's not super colorful in the sense of like the way the burton batman films are colorful but he manages to bring out a richness of those kind of nighttime colors and again the like depth of the shots in a really amazing way i think like the car chase where it's just the whole thing is pouring rain yes because that car chase kind of has the opposite philosophy of a lot of really good car chases like it's kind of it's very different from what you'd see in like mission impossible which has like amazing chase scenes but the whole point of those is that you have 
a very clear idea of what's happening and are extremely engaged in like this sort of propulsive journey. Whereas in this, it was like, here's this completely chaotic atmosphere. You're in Gotham and you're in the middle of a crashing car and it's very wet, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Whereas like the action stuff, more hand-to-hand action stuff, which is, there isn't a ton of that in the movie, yeah. but when they do do it, it's very easy to follow. Like it's shot in a very coherent way, which often is not the case. And I totally agree with your perennial complaint that like, it would be nice if there were a superhero film that were actually colorful, but I didn't mind at all that this one wasn't. Also, it's it felt- Batman. Like, <laughs> yeah, Batman is, it's like Batman's the one where I'm okay if everything takes place at night you know (laughs) yeah and like it just felt like they so had a vision for what they wanted to do and executed it so perfectly on a visual level that even though I was watching on my laptop I just was really thrilled by how it looked and that's such a novelty in a film like this yeah I mean that's good to hear because like when I was watching at the cinema I was sort of like how is this gonna look at home because it is very dark you know and sometimes that just doesn't translate I've heard some people complaining about it watching on their television, so I feel like it's going to vary a lot for people depending on their TV settings or just what model of TV they have. Ironically, I think laptop screens are really good for this kind of thing. Even though it's small, like you're going to get exactly the picture that the streaming service is giving to you, right? So yeah, it looked like incredible for me. Um, I wish I'd been able to see it on a big screen, but again, the two-part experience was also positive, so... <laughs> I enjoyed this a lot. Definitely liked it more than I was expecting to based on all of the preliminary advertising materials that they put out, <laughs> which I thought looked grim and boring. Yeah, I mean, the trailers were just the most generic thing, but I was like, well, you know what? I like Robert Pattinson. And the fact is that while I wish they'd allowed Robert to be more weird, he's obviously great in this. He looks great. I love the eyeliner situation. <laughs> and uh, Zoe Kravitz's costumes were fantastic. Have you seen Kimmy yet? No. No, right? I need it's to see Kimmy. There. She's fantastic in that. So I think it's, she's having a great year. And I just think he's one of the best actors of that age group. Of course. And I think what's so, so exciting to me about him is that everything he does is completely different from everything else. Not yeah. just genre-wise, although that's obviously true, but... There are a lot of great actors who don't have a ton of range, which I don't think is a bad thing. Like, if you can do one thing really well, that's a huge skill as well. But to compare this performance to, like, Good Time, (laughs) you you would never think that the same person could do both of those. And I know that's what acting is, but having watched him in Twilight, in which he is aggressively bad, it's really lovely to be like, sometimes people get better. At their jobs. <laughs> you know he's what? also like, he's a very Lovely. good actor. He's a very serious actor. He's a very technical actor who also is just kind of a fun weirdo and is not doing this kind of like egomaniacal, immersive nonsense that you see from people like Jared Leto. Yes, those those are two names I would not normally put in a sentence together. Yes, well, the reason I bring it up is just because Robert Pattinson literally did an interview recently where he was like, this method bullshit is bullshit. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> Clearly subtweeting a certain someone. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all the interviews he was giving, you know, two years ago when the shoot was locked down and he was just like going mad in his flat in London were like, I hate working out. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to, you know, eat my weird food. Which was clearly, clearly exaggerating. But like, it was kind of interesting to see his torso in this movie because like, obviously he is a very slim and muscular man, but... He is the only person who's allowed to play this role and not be an enormous tank. And I was like, thank goodness, this is, you you look very slim. (laughs) It was so interesting and refreshing. Like, as you say, he's obviously very fit, but he clearly did not go on any substances. Yeah. He looks looks like a completely normal range of Robert Pattinson, you know? Yeah. Which is correct. Like, that is correct. For this era of Bruce Wayne, a guy with lots of martial arts training who is still, you know, young and not eating very much and is depressed and pallid and listening to Nirvana with eyeliner smirking all over his face. You know, that's what it should be. You know, he shouldn't look like a Christian Bale. No. And his hair. Oh my God. Chef kiss. Oh my God. The lank hair. I'm in love with it. I'm truly in love with it. Yeah, he really needs to shower. It's like my abiding feeling. Which is perfect. Perfect for the character. Exactly correct. It's not like he's going to any parties. Nope. No, indeed. 
yeah, I think we're we're broadly positive on this film, I think, which you can now watch on HBO Max in America, as probably most of you have, if you're still <laughs> listening. <laughs> and Gavia, why don't you tell our listeners what we will be doing next week? And as dramatic a pivot from this film <laughs> as is imaginable. Yes, after doing The Northman and The Batman, we decided to do something different because uh, we've had a lot of macho violence recently. We are going to review next week The Watermelon Women, which is a 1996 comedy written, directed, and starring Cheryl Dunye. And it's about a young black lesbian who works in a video store and she becomes obsessed with this black actress from the 1930s who has this role that's just kind of credited as the Watermelon Women. And um, it's kind of widely known as the first movie directed by a black openly gay woman. And it's meant to be really great. I've not personally seen it, but I know many people who have and are like, you have to see this film, it's great. So I look forward to watching it. And uh, Morgan, I believe you have already seen it and do in fact concur that it's great. Yes, it's really great. I'll be watching it again, of course, for the episode because I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but it's a really excellent movie. And it's really, really smart and interesting about the history of film, the history of Hollywood, history in general, and like what kind of gets buried and forgotten. And it's also just like very entertaining. I mean, I don't know exactly the budget. We'll obviously research this for next week, but I can't imagine it was made for more than like a tiny, tiny amount of money. And yet it looks great. It's just like very slick and smart and entertaining. I think it's, you know, one of the best American films, like period. Um, it's so interesting. So definitely check that out if you have not seen it before next week. It's completely, completely worth watching. So thank you to everyone for listening, as always. And if you would like to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We have a backlog of bonus episodes up there, and you can also request a film for us to discuss. We also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. A five-star rating or review is particularly helpful for visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I have a review of the Batman and also an article kind of analyzing Catwoman and Batman's relationship and kind of that, the inspiration with the movie Clute. Um, So that's on The Daily Dot. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.